Thank you, Peter, very much. Shall we pray as we look at God's word together this morning? Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are risen and alive and that you still speak today. You testify to the truth of God through your word today. And we pray that we will, this morning, by your help, have open ears and soft hearts to listen and to see you as you truly are, to listen to the truth as you speak it. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, uh, it is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, uh, this time of year, this period in 2017, and John Calvin was born uh, around 500 years ago, just as the Reformation was about to break upon Europe, as Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to his church door. And Calvin uh, was a very intelligent young man. He studied Greek and Roman philosophy from about age 12. I'm sure you were the same. Um, And he intended to become a lawyer, but he was converted to Christ around about age 20 and went on uh, through that, that Protestant gospel he heard to become a remarkable, but actually often a very hard-pressed, you know, a, a lot of suffering as a pastor in Geneva and in Strasbourg. And it's very easy to think, I think, today in 2017 that, that back then in 1517 uh, that it was a lot easier to be a Christian, to believe in God. They haven't, didn't have all the kind of modern sceptical science, all that stuff that makes it hard today. But actually it was a very tough world that Calvin was born into. Uh, plague was all around them. There was no real modern medicine, no antibiotics or anything like that then. Uh, Most children died before age three. And death was all around. And many were sceptical back then about God and about God's justice in a world like that, a very tough world. And in the middle of that sort of world, Calvin wrote this about the personal nature of faith. He said... Faith is not a naked knowledge either of God or his truth, but a sure knowledge of God's mercy, which is received from the gospel and brings peace of conscience and rest to the mind. All around us is opposed, he says, to the promises of God. He promises immortality, but we are surrounded by mortality and decay. He declares us righteous but we're covered with sins. He testifies that he is merciful and kind to us, but outward judgments or circumstances threaten his wrath. Now, look more at Calvin and say in our second seminar next week, but how like our questions today were the questions people were asking back then? They were really asking these sort of things. Who or what should we put our trust in? What will save us from all of these fears and dangers in life? And our culture today may may trust in new things like technology to rescue us or personal feelings as what should drive us and guide us rather than God's word. But it's really the basic question, who or what can save us? What do we trust in? That's always the question. Now, in John's Gospel, John believes, an eyewitness, that Jesus 
should be the answer to that question, what do I trust in? John's been building a case for Jesus from the very early chapters of the gospel. We've seen him, Jesus, turn water, uh, the water of religion into the wine of salvation. We've seen him claim to be the temple where we truly meet with God. He's called last time, uh, earlier in John 3, a religious leader, Nicodemus, to new birth in order to find life. And in our reading today, John follows all of that with these two massive further claims about Jesus and his trustworthiness. First one is that there is no saviour as great as Jesus. That's our first one. And then second, we'll look at there is no teacher as trustworthy as Jesus. So there's no saviour as great as Jesus. That's the first section from verse 22 to 30. Now, if you look at verse 22, John tells us here that Jesus is baptising people at the same time as John the Baptist was still baptising. Um, probably a, a baptism of repentance, of coming back to find God. John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, come to John with a question. It's not a theological question about baptism. You know, what, what's the water symbolise? It might have been good if it was, actually. Um, it's a selfish question. Have a look at verse 26. Rabbi, the man, this is Jesus, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, Jesus, look, he's baptizing. And shock horror, everyone's going to him. You kind of sense the panic, almost the paranoia behind the question. Oh no, no, John, all your followers, they're, they're going to Jesus. Jesus, it seems, is even more popular and charismatic as a preacher and a teacher and a baptizer than John was. Instead of being pleased that lives are being changed by the Messiah, John's disciples are jealous that converts are being stolen. It's almost like a a government minister who's in line maybe to be prime minister one day and suddenly resigns, and someone younger shock horror comes along that no one expected, and they all thought they were next to nine, and he got the job instead. And John's reply must have been a big surprise to me. Maybe it shouldn't be too hard on the disciples. It it would have been, probably any of us did the same thing, a a change of what we thought was the right thing to trust in. Whether it's someone you're following or an idea you've got, any change is hard, especially in faith. And John's reply does nonetheless shock them. Instead of saying, thanks for the warning, guys. You're quite right. We need to improve our marketing to get ahead of Jesus again. John says, don't worry about Jesus. Um, We all do in life what God's given us to do, our own job. I've done mine. He's doing his. A person can only do, he says, verse 27, what? has been given to them from God. I'm just the messenger. He said this before. I'm just the messenger boy. He is the Messiah. He goes on uh, to say, verse 29, it's like a wedding where the bride arrives, the bridegroom's waiting, and the best man's got everything ready for him. And John is saying it would be very odd if the friend, the best man stepped across the aisle as she came down and said, that's me, I'm going to marry her. And John's saying, I'm the best man, I'm just a friend. 
he is the bridegroom, it's quite right that he should receive the bride. And in the Old Testament, you might know if you're taking notes, in places like um, Isaiah, chapter 62, God speaks of himself as a bridegroom and his people as his bride. So John's saying, this is what should happen. I rejoice to see Jesus arrive, like a best man does when the bridegroom comes. That's my role, I've done my job. Don't think I'm annoyed or jealous, I'm rejoicing. Then he says in verse 30, he must become greater. Jesus must become greater and I must become less. It's his time now. That's the humble message of John, that there is no saviour as great as Jesus. Even a great prophet like John the Baptist will say, I must become less because he needs to be seen as greater. That power of jealousy, it's a very powerful thing. I don't know if you know the play or the film Amadeus, which is about the relationship between the, mu- the musical prodigy Mozart and a contemporary called Salieri. And Salieri is a, is a talented court musician, but just nothing like in the League of Mozart. And everything writes, that Mozart writes, everyone loves. He seems to be able to do it at the drop of a hat. He's young, he has a pretty kind of wild life, and yet everyone loves his music. And Salieri despises Mozart's prodigious talent. And he cannot bear the attention that Mozart gets. And he complains at one point that God is being unfair to him. Why has God given Mozart all that talent and not given it to him? Why does he get all the credit? And he says to God, you know, you, you owe me. And he tries to pass off one of Mozart's pieces as his own and says, I deserve this. I deserve some credit. He confesses to a priest, and even the priest can't reassure him that God is not being unfair here. And there is Salieri. It's so sad. Instead of rejoicing at this talent in Mozart that's come to the world and helping the world to hear Mozart's music, as he could have done, he could have opened the doors for the world to hear Mozart, he just resents him. Jealousy. John is so different, isn't he, from that? John is delighted that the bridegroom's come, the Messiah's here, and he wants to open the doors for everyone to hear him. He's a great warning to those of us if maybe through temperament or through talent, we're tempted, without even realising it, to think that we are our own saviour, that we're kind of the Messiah. As we pursue a successful career or a luxurious lifestyle that we've somehow achieved, or in a great university grades or school grades, so tempted to think it's all about me saving myself. I'm going to do this. If I think I can think or earn or live my own way to God, I'm not listening to John who says, no, don't trust in your own abilities that God's given you. Look to Jesus. I think it's also a challenge as we think about the, the ideology around us in our culture. Uh, Richard Dawkins, um, the, the sceptic atheist biologist, he wrote 30 years ago that we are just selfish genes, meaning you know, the ones inside ourselves, not the ones we wear. Selfish genes. Um, that something inside us, our, our chemistry, is just driving us to reproduce, and that's all we are, he says. All that matters is mating. And John knows better. We're not just individuals that just want to reproduce. We're actually children of God, potentially, through faith, 
with a much greater cause than that, which is to point the world to Jesus. I am not the Messiah, says John, say say all of us, he is. I'm not the bridegroom, he is. I must become less, he must become greater. He is the greatest saviour. No one's as great as him. That's my first point. Here's the second one. Look at the second section, verses 31 onwards. There is also no teacher as trustworthy as Jesus. It's all about how we, who we listen to, who we trust, isn't it? That's what faith is. Uh, in the, the first section, it was really about who should we follow. You know, gurus, messiahs, Jesus. This is, can we trust him? There aren't speech marks in the original, in the original of the New Testament, um, but probably here, verse 31 switches from being John the Baptist speaking to John the Gospel writer, which I think is what our New International Version has has suggested here, probably rightly. So this is John the, the, the writer here, and he makes four points about why the words of Jesus about God are true in a way that nothing else is. Why Jesus is more trustworthy than any other teacher uh, or idea that you come across. I've I've summarised them on the screen there for you. Um, But just quickly in turn, verse 31, listen to Jesus because he comes from heaven. The one who comes from heaven is above all. The one who's from earth, he means probably himself here, people like even John the Evangelist, the gospel writer, belongs to the earth, speaks as one from the earth. You know, we're, we're, we're just earthly. We're just human, aren't we? We're mortal, we'd say. But he's divine. John the disciple, John the Baptist, me, we're all earthly. Jesus came from heaven. Second, verse 32, he speaks of what he's seen. He testifies, says John, to what he has seen and heard. But no one, this is the sad bit, accepts his testimony. Been a bit of a theme in John. If you were here last time, Jesus said to Nicodemus, We speak what we know from heaven, but you don't listen. You plural. You Jewish leaders, you don't listen. Back in John chapter 1, the light came into the darkness. The darkness did not, do you remember? Did not receive it, did not accept it. So John says here, even Jesus' words as he spoke them, people didn't listen to them. But John says that Jesus is speaking about the God from whom he comes. He's been there, as it were. He is from God. He knows what God is like because he is God. It's not something you read in a book or heard in a podcast. It's the real thing. It's rather like um, the difference between me telling you the Queen sometimes stays at Sandringham, because I read it in a magazine somewhere, and Prince Harry telling you because he stayed there with her. He speaks of what he's seen. His words are God's words. This is really interesting, verse 33. Uh, It's not all bad news, you see. Some didn't listen, but clearly some did. John says, whoever has accepted it, that's Jesus' words, his testimony, has certified that God is truthful. Some have believed Jesus. Bit of a surprise here. I'd have expected to say, whoever's accepted his words has accepted that Jesus is truthful. See what it actually says, verse 33. Whoever has accepted Jesus' words has accepted or certified that God is truthful. Isn't that interesting? It really is as if 
The words that Jesus is speaking are God's words. And if you listen to Jesus, you're listening to God. If you trust Jesus, you're trusting God. Do you see that? So, his words are God's words. Really interesting claim, isn't it? And then, fourthly, his words are all of God's words. Verse 34, the one that God sends speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything, all things, in his hands. I think what the sense is there is that in the past, God gave, um, you might say, elements of, parts of, small doses of his Spirit to, for instance, the prophets or some of the kings, that they could have a, a momentary role for him and serve him. But he's saying, Jesus, that's different. God the Father has given Jesus all of his spirit. He's held nothing back. Jesus is fully divine, fully filled with God's spirit. And he puts it another way in the next verse. He says, he loves the Son and has placed everything, all things, you might say all truth, in his hands. So where uh, any of us, where God's given us faith in his spirit, can teach a little bit of his truth, well, it's different with Jesus. He can teach you all of God's truth, because God's given him all of his spirit. I guess in our language you might say this, there's nothing Jesus cannot tell us about God because Jesus speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So that's why, isn't it, you and I should listen so carefully to what Jesus says. He is absolutely trustworthy. Because he's from heaven, he's seen uh, God his Father in heaven, his words are God's words, and they're all of God's words. Calvin says of this passage, in case we're going to all this, this sounds a bit sort of, you know, why does God love the Son? Um, I thought God loved all of us. As he said in verse 16, God so loves the world. Well, Calvin said this, God loves the Son, not so that his love for the world is diminished, but so that his love for the world may come to us in his love of the Son. Isn't that great? It's because he's poured his love into his Son that as we receive Jesus, as we listen to him, the love of God comes to us too. There's no teacher as trustworthy as Jesus. So kind of bring this together. What does that mean for us today? Well, verse 36 is really where this passage heads, isn't it? This is such a great, important verse. Verse 36, memorize this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him or her. There's always this stark pairing of God's stance towards the world. There's always, he loves us and saves those who trust his son, and his wrath remains on those who do not trust his son. Always that balance in the Bible. You see, faith says to God, not, here are my works, or here's my my good life, Um, please accept me. Faith simply says, Jesus died for me, so that as I trust him, I can receive eternal life. That's what faith is and, and does. But unbelief is simply saying to God, I would rather continue without you. 
I'd rather not trust your son. I'd rather not listen to his words. That's what unbelief really is. It's a refusal to, to listen to God. And John's warning here, isn't he, on the kind of negative side, that we are all by nature full of sin in our hearts. Or if you put it this way, that the darkness, the night of sin, is in all our hearts. And the only way to have that removed or to have light replace it is to trust in Jesus and his death on the cross for us, which takes away our sins and, as John says here, connects us, gives us eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son, say it with me, has eternal life. That's right. What a great promise that is. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I had my appendix removed about 25 years ago. And as I did that, as I kind of went under the anaesthetic, I remember the, the, the anaesthetist kind of going, count to ten, within one, two, and that's all I remember after that. You are trusting, aren't you, in, in surgery, in the hands of the surgeon. You're placing your life in their hands. You're trusting in someone who's, who you trust, whose qualifications and experience are adequate for the task. Well, it's so much more important and so much more the case with faith, with the big question of life, where do I put my trust in life, that we do that in the right place, in Jesus, in a person. Because, you know, technology is great, um, human thinking, it's, it's all great, but only Jesus is absolutely trustworthy for the big things. Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in vicars? In clergy? No, thank you. Thanks for that vote of confidence over there. A survey recently showed that um, clergy are among the five most trustworthy professions according to teenagers. Interesting, isn't it? Not sure what the other four were, but a, a bit encouraging. Uh, what about, do you trust in scientists and what they say? Now, important to listen, isn't it? Now, global warming, a lot of things we need to listen to from science. But can they change our hearts? Um, connect us to eternity, to God, I'm not sure they can. What about the kind of liberal agenda? It's got a very strong sense, hasn't it, of equality. That's a good thing. But again, surely it can't be right just to say that whatever I feel I have a right to is true. That can't be right, can it? There must be more to life and truth than that. What about politicians? No, let's not worry about that. Um, <laughs> What about Jesus, though? What about Jesus? How far do you trust Jesus' words to be true? That's really the question, isn't it, from John? How far do you trust Jesus' words? Because, you see, the person who refuses, who reads this gospel and refuses to listen to it, is really saying to God, I think you're a con man. I don't believe a word you say. And if that's you... Uh, or if you know someone like that, don't give up. Keep praying. Keep asking God to help yourself or that person to begin to listen. Because Jesus' words are trustworthy. Only he is a teacher that comes from God himself. But on the, again, on the positive side, faith, trusting God. It's wonderful. It releases us from feeling that being a Christian is all about what I do, my performance, being good enough. 
Faith just says, I trust Jesus' promise to accept me as I am through his death. To give me eternal life because of what? Because I believe. Whoever believes has eternal life. Faith also is being prepared to trust the words of Jesus when we find them hard. Um, eternal life, again. Death is, in our culture, often not mentioned, but it's still such a painful and such a harsh universal reality. Jesus promises eternal life. Am I prepared to trust him when I'm struggling in the face of death? I'm going to finish with a sentence um, it's going to, on the screen there. It's really language that the, the Reformation would have, would have recovered for us and given us, this language of faith alone and so on. But it's actually straight from the Bible. It's very much, this is what John's Gospel is saying to us. So I'm going to finish with this. This is what we've seen this morning. Faith alone trusts Christ's word alone for eternal life through his grace alone. It's not what I do, but what he's done. It's not uh, whether I feel this is true, but whether I trust his promises. And it's not that I trust in myself, it's that I trust in Christ alone to save me. So let's be still as we pray. And in a few minutes we're going to receive the bread and wine of communion. If you're here this morning as a person of faith, as a great reminder, a great sign of that death through which in faith alone we come to Christ. Let's pray. Whoever believes has eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your words. Thank you that we can trust them because you come to us as one with the very authority of heaven who's seen and speaks of what you know. And thank you that you've held nothing back in what you've shown us of God, that all your words are true and are all the truth. We Pray for those of us that struggle with faith that you'll help us to keep searching and give us the gift of faith to trust you. And may the bread and wine this morning that we share as followers of Christ connect us powerfully with him who is alive and in whom we find eternal life now as well as in eternity. In his name we pray. Amen.